Hey, Best Paper Pod listeners. Um, I'm all pissed off because I've been trying to troubleshoot with my computer and my Mac. Uh, my microphone, I mean. Um, for like the last half hour. And I, I think my mic is working, but on my computer, so unfortunately you're just going to have to hear me from this recording. It is Saturday, March 20th. Um, you're about to hear a fantastic episode with Bobby Lucier, an absolute genius about environmentalism, conservatism, etc. Um, but I wanted to make this message to let you know that it is with a heavy heart that I announce that episode 15 of Best Paper Pod will be the last episode of season one. Um, I just need more time for season two. I have a lot of really exciting ideas for season two that break the format, do a bit more research, interview more people per episode sort of thing, a little bit more research-based. So I'm really, really excited to put in the time and energy to that. Um, And I've got, you know, some other projects as well. So first off, I wanted to, of course, thank John, my editor, who has put in hours of my listening through and saying, um, can you please cut this? Please, I'm very sorry after I already said there's nothing left to be cut. Um, and thank my Hickory Playground team. If it wasn't for the Hickory Playground team, there I would not have made this podcast at all. Um, so that's, you know, Dylan, Jordan, Morgan, Patrick, Simone. Seriously, thank you so very much for giving me this new way to learn, new way to engage with my friends. Um, It really has been an absolute joy over the last few months making these episodes. And thank you so much to my guests, uh, future and past, because I have learned so, so much over the last few months, and you have been absolutely delightful to work with. And thank you, listeners. I have received so much more positive feedback than I ever would have thought. Um... It's kind of a dream come true. I really, really love podcasts, and I have my own. So thank you so much for believing in me and for listening. Enjoy. I'm Jess Fisher, and this is the best paper I ever wrote. Today is February 27th, 27th, not 22nd. Today is a B-Day, B for Bobby. Uh, <laughs> what are you What are you doing today, anonymous guest? Ooh, what am I doing today? Um, so I'm currently, you know, sitting in my bedroom. Um, I'm just kind of like deep. That's your bedroom? Yeah, this is my bedroom. It's my... You have a nice painting behind you. Yeah, it's like fake. Got it at Goodwill for three dollars or something. But well, that's nice. Um, yeah, I'm like just I'm like deep in a Burlington, Vermont winter right now, which is I think like fun for people who ski and do like <laughs> snowy things, and yeah. like slightly less fun and a little bit more depressing for people who don't, which happens to be me. But um, does it get depressing when it's winter for like how many months of the year is it like winter? just so many like a handful um (laughs) it like it snows through like april sometimes may and then like may is like mud season in vermont so it's just like because all of the 
all of the like snow is melting off the mountains and stuff and just like you know around the streets and everything and so everything's just puddly and gross like mm. on the streets it's puddly and gross in like the trails and stuff it's puddly and gross so it's just like got a long way before you know like when i lived in before new jersey it, gets it was nice. right it was like when i lived in new jersey it was like okay february end of february means like we're almost there we're about to have a few like 70 degree days this is it's not close we're st- we're still in the the cold the cold times do you think that you want to stay there then? Or do you think you want to go somewhere hotter one day? Uh, um, I actually, you know, yeah, I didn't paint it very nicely just now, but I actually do, I actually do really like it. <laughs> um, and yeah, I think there's like some solidarity in just like experiencing this like brutally cold winter together with, with other people. Um, sure. And I'm also like locked into being here job wise for a little bit longer so oh true yeah. true true true. yeah yeah because yeah, there's a lot of people that come from like um they'll live in seattle but they'll have a house in phoenix um they're called snowbirds mm. and when it hits uh probably like november through november through like march they just hang out in phoenix yep and then they go back up and people in phoenix hate snowbirds oh yeah but it's a ton of people. I'm seeing it all over the dating apps. People that are like, yeah, I'm from Seattle. I'm just visiting. Oh, my gosh. Um, those people. That's so funny that like I totally knew of that phenomenon on the East Coast and had no idea that it existed on the West Coast. Like, you know, right. like the New Jersey-Florida connection is so real. Yeah. But, yeah, no idea. That's so funny. Oh, yeah. I, I mean, it's like, it's like 78, 80 every day here right now. Cool. I, Fine. Believe it or not... <laughs> Believe it or not, it gets old. Like when it's overcast, mm-hmm. I'm like, it's overcast. No, you don't say that. <laughs> no I do. Way. I literally do. Yeah. Am I someone who lies about my <laughs> about my wow the weather? Um, wait, we haven't even. I've known this guest for a very long time. Um, how about you introduce yourself? Uh, okay, sure. My name's Bobby, <laughs> um, and I come from new jersey uh i should i say how how i know you or should i just say like yeah. some more facts about me okay so uh i grew up in middletown new jersey with jess and a bunch of other people and <laughs> it was just us <laughs> not just us there we were, were the others. only people there we were the protagonists but there were other <laughs> minor characters involved um we went to you know middle school high school together um we met, I think, probably at the seventh grade uh, Guys and Dolls production, I think. No, we were in homeroom. In sixth grade? Seventh grade? Oh, no, in seventh grade. It was in seventh grade. Okay, yeah. So that sounds right. Guys and Dolls wasn't until the spring. Guys and Dolls was after we broke up. <laughs> All right. So you're getting ahead of <laughs> getting ahead of us here. Uh, when I was at a, a ripe young age of 12 years old, uh, I... Uh, I and Jess, Jess and I dated <laughs> for what, five weeks, four weeks? Yeah, actually, that's, I think five weeks is probably accurate. Mm-hmm. A good, a good, like, middle school, like, I mean, yeah. five weeks in middle school it felt was, like, like established. Yeah. Yeah. It was, like, that's a was good real. amount of time. Yep. And the, <laughs> it was real. by far the, like, the best highlight was going to see 
the movie Valentine's Day on, on Valentine's, Valentine's Day. Day. Yeah. Um, I, was... I get to say that about that movie. Me Every too. time I people talk about that movie, I'm like, mm-hmm. I saw it in theaters on Valentine's Day. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I saw this with my ex-girlfriend. <laughs> my ex-girlfriend. <laughs> <laughs> That's like so funny to, yeah. <laughs> we had, um, we had so a anyway, bit of a the... bumpy road to get there, uh, d- the dating. But once we were there, I think we went, we had like, I think we had two dates ice skating and valentine's day of the five weeks ice skating at the armory yeah that's oh yeah ice skating at the armory where like we didn't talk at all and we just skated side by side Mm -hmm. yeah that was a good one yeah (laughs) i was probably like a foot shorter than you or something like that i don't think about that because (laughs) that was just how my boyfriends were until i was like 16 yeah Um, i mean uh, but yeah, you probably yeah. were about a foot shorter than me. Yeah. That's funny. Just trying to paint the picture of us ice skating together. Yeah. Was, oh, wow. Sure. It was lovely. There's a really, um, there was a really classic moment where, um, you know, the phrase, how about them Yankees? How about them socks? Um, we were waiting in yep. line um, to buy the tickets for Valentine's Day. And, you know, first date, we're 12 years old. We're really nervous. And so I go, how about them Yankees? And Bobby goes, it's off season and turns away and i think that's just the most brilliant (laughs) yeah i really didn't get what you were trying to do there i don't think (laughs) well like how about them yankees is a very like 50 year old person thing to say like oh how about them yankees you know at the time i was very into the yankees so i think i was (laughs) i was like like, a little bit mad that you would like i took it so literally and i was like no there's nothing to talk about there (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> there's nothing to talk about there that's pretty funny <laughs> oh boy yeah um what was i gonna say so you you still go by bobby right with like all your friends yes yeah no i just kind of it was funny i um when i went to college i tried like i kind of told myself it's like okay i'm gonna go by rob in college yeah and i think i remember I think, that happening like, yeah i like had committed to it i was like facing some pressure from people in our friend groups to to make the transition and I think like it was literally I was like I'd like thought about it for a while and kind of theorized what you know um why I wanted to do it and then mm-hmm. like the first person I met I was like you know I was like hey how's it going I'm Bobby and I was like fuck all right now I can't <laughs> I Damn can't it. go back because <laughs> I remember Tara called you Rob um yeah Aaron too ah yes yes so yeah. I was like I, when I when I sat down to write these questions, I was like, wow, am I like calling him Bobby because like I have an antiquated version of my friend Bobby in my head because I haven't seen you in a couple of years. But Bobby and I do a really good job of like being friends, we even do. though we don't see each other that much. We do a oh. really good job of it. I yeah. Think. Oh, yeah. No. And I was pu- I pulled out the other day um, like a journal that you had given me at graduation or high school graduation, which was so cute. And it just had like this note in it. And I ended up filling the rest of the pages with like other journaly stuff. But it had this note. It was like really nice, by the way. So thank you again for that journal. You're welcome. But it just had this note in it that was just like, I love that we can just like always pick up where we left off. And it like sounds cliche. And but it's still been, true. It's, it's five years later. So, That's so nice. Yeah. Um, yeah. Um, let's see. Okay. So let's 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 get into the nitty gritty. Uh, where did you go to school? What did you study? And where do you work now? Yes. Uh, I went to Princeton. I studied environmental engineering technically. Studied in a loose term. Um, but I, yeah, I, I graduated in 2019, moved up to Burlington, Vermont, 
and I currently work at this like philanthropic fund called uh, the High Meadows Fund, and we make grants and like investments to uh, nonprofits and like small businesses across Vermont that are like doing like climate work and land use resilience work and farm viability work, um, basically just like environmental nonprofits all around Vermont. Um, so yeah, it's been a cool kind of experience to just get to know a million different organizations. Vermont has, I swear there might be more nonprofits than people in Vermont. Um, it's just wild <laughs> because there, there certainly aren't many people and there are so many nonprofits. Um, every, every Vermonter like thinks that they like have the next save the world idea, which is like great. And also like, just means that, you know, there, there's a saturation of, uh, of nonprofits and, and not as much funding to, to support them all. So, um, oh. yeah, it's been interesting work and it's definitely not, I like did the whole engineering degree thing. And then was like, mm, do I really want to be doing math forever? And I decided no. <laughs> so my, my work is a lot more like, it's like writing recommendations and calling partners to like talk about their project and like kind of convening, like every once in a while, which is really exciting. I get the chance to like, just like convene a group of people that are like selected because of their specific lived experience and say like, hey, you all have $20,000 to give away. And my job is just to like facilitate a conversation to figure out where you want to give it. And then like, you know, just kind of watch that unfold. And that's super fun. And like, you know, just just really good work. So what do you um, mean by uh, lived experience in that context? Yeah. So um, we like most recently I did this um, High Meadows did this with a group called like the Vermont Changemakers Table, which is um, basically like it's a group of young Vermonters. So like in Vermont, young means like younger than 35. Um, mm -hmm. <laughs> I think it's like one of the oldest states in the country. And really? Yeah. Um, I, I think know that. Yeah. Like Montana or Wyoming. I don't know. Maine, maybe. Anyway. Um, yeah. So we like, you know, try to find it's like. The whole, I don't want to go on too much of a philanthropy rant here, but like philanthropy is so often controlled <laughs> by just like the people who have buttloads of money and, sure. um, you know, and, and like they, it's so nice of them to be super generous with all the money that they made. And like, they don't necessarily know how to best use that money. Um, and so they often just give it to like massive organizations that like they know are doing good work, but like really if like people could just put in a little bit more work and time into like seeking out the right perspectives of like people that know what needs exist on the ground and like how the money can best support people immediately um then it's like almost always worth it so that's kind of you know that's how i i like luckily fell into this you know this job to be able to do that work is that <clears throat> like a more recent thing like um is that has that role always existed in the realm of environmentalism? Well, I think it's so like participatory grant making, which is like the process of just like finding people who have experiences that can like inform um, like decisions about where the money goes and like bringing them to the table. Um, it's like gaining a lot of steam, but it's not it's certainly not the I'd say like 98 percent of like philanthropic dollars are still like deployed by like just the rich people who think they know where it should go um but it's i think it's like a growing practice and that's something that's really exciting to me is like people should like kind of think of it as the standard to like assemble like groups of people that actually know where the money should go 
before they decide where money goes, you know? <laughs> yeah, it, it, it's it's funny that it sounds like, like a no-brainer. But... Yeah, yeah. Crazy that it's yeah. not, right? Like, I feel like I came in and was like, oh, this is not how it... I mean, like, there are, like, boards of directors, but, like, our board of directors is, like... I mean, you know, they had a lot of different careers, but they're still all old white people. And yeah, you know, yeah. so, like, you're inevitably going to have a ton of blind spots in that room, you know? So Yeah, yeah. Blind spots. That's that's just a really nice, easy word for that. Mm-hmm. Um, did you always want to do environmentalism? Because, like, I, I didn't – I don't remember that in high school. Yeah. Um, I guess not. Um, I guess I kind of realized at school that it was something that I really wanted to um, – I, like, kind of got into it through – like, I thought I wanted to do civil engineering and architecture – and then mm-hmm. as a result of that, I, like, took classes about, like, the environment and the atmosphere and climate. And, like, I think that kind of woke me up to realizing that, like, we're in a climate emergency. And then mm-hmm. I was, like, I just, like, felt this sort of compulsion to be, like, oh, the next thing that I do, like, has to be something related to addressing the climate crisis. And mm-hmm. um, so, yeah, it was a sort of circuitous route i definitely was more oh, like so i you came f- in you feel fulfilled by it uh i mean like i think i <laughs> <laughs> um yikes i think i um you know I, I don't think that like it's ever like enough i think i have a lot to learn and you know mm. i want to kind of stay like humble and trying to you know and, and yeah and trying to do the work but i do really like the work yeah okay yeah, I'm sorry I interrupted you before. Did was was it? Do you remember what you were saying? <laughs> no, no. Okay. All of my thoughts are pretty much they're gone within three seconds of the time they come out of my mouth. I'm so. sorry. <laughs> no, I'm sorry, listeners. You'll never know. Probably for the best. Um, so could you talk to me about? Um, okay, well let's let's like address the paper yes. before I ask the specific questions about cool. the paper. What was the paper called? What class was it for? And what was it about? Yes. Oh, I probably should have opened up the paper. Okay, I'll do that in a second. Um, <laughs> It was called The End of the End of Nature um, and colon, Evaluating Bill McKibben's Role in the Modern Climate Justice Movement. Um, And The End of Nature Mm -hmm. is um, a book that Bill McKibben wrote in 1989. And this was for a class um, called American Environmental History that I took in my senior year. It was actually taught by this very old married couple it was really interesting that they, so they were both professors. They were like probably in their seventies. Um, and they, like most of the classes were just them like arguing with each other about like environmental <laughs> history. But it was like an interesting way to learn about it because like they would always push back on each other and um, you know, yeah. <laughs> but it made just kind of a, it was just a weird like sitcomish environment of like all like just like twelve students just like looking at, uh you know a a marriage's tensions emerge through <laughs> environmental history. <laughs> um, that actually that sounds like a really good play, just like a two character play that's just two a married couple teaching a class. Yeah. I really like that. It was they were it was really cute. They 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 pulled it off. Um. But yeah, so <laughs> well, I guess that's also good about learning about a subject that has a lot of debate. It's good that it's not one person. It's good that the class itself was a debate. Yeah, for sure. Um, and I think the basically like yeah, the final paper was just like write about anything that you know that we've uh, talked about in the class. And um, I was at the time 
I had a radio show um, at the like college radio station that was focused on like environmental justice issues and like bringing folks that are either like involved in environmental justice work or environmental justice discourse, like literature, and like bringing them on this radio show to just like talk about the work that they were doing. Um, and so this like EJ, short for environmental justice, like lens was kind of front of mind for me. And mm -hmm. towards the end of the course, we were reading a lot of uh, Bill McKibben, who I probably mm -hmm. should explain who Bill McKibben is. Um, so Bill. The topic of this podcast episode. <laughs> yes, th this guy <laughs> who, yeah, we're going to learn way too much about Bill. But he, um, so basically Bill um, wrote this book called The End of Nature in 1989. And it's like kind of acknowledged to be the first book that acknowledges global warming for a public audience. Um, okay. And so, like, obviously, like, you know, different torchbearers kind of pick up that, um, you know, that thread and become, like, you know, like Al Gore kind of becomes, like, the the father of the, like, global warming movement and, like, the... The, the buzz name right, that, right, that right. every household knows. Sort of right. Thing. But he, yeah, I mean, like, I guess the argument kind of goes that he, you know, wouldn't have, like, been as aware of... of the crisis if it weren't for a writer like Bill McKibben. So he like is a staff writer at the New Yorker in the eighties and he writes this book and it's talking about global warming, but it's very much, it, it takes this very like philosophical like framework about like, it's called the end of nature. And so it talks about just like how like nature in its pristine and like wild form is like, like no longer exists. Like it's no longer a thing. And it's because like, I think I have a quote here somewhere. Yeah. He says, by changing the weather, we make every spot on earth man-made and artificial. We have deprived nature of its independence, and that is fatal to its meaning. Nature's independence is its meaning. So he's super, you know. Okay. Like, okay. Yeah. He, he's, he's, like, focusing a lot on, like, climate change as it relates to how we think of nature. Um, and, you know, we'll come to see that, like, you know, that... Like the discourse around environmental movements, like has been rooted in that kind of framework for a really long time, and only in recent years has begun to take more of a justice kind of centered framework, where like we're actually talking and about. And you would call that? Sorry, go ahead. We're talking about. Yeah, just you know, that's uh, that, that's kind of the movements that we see nowadays, like the Sunrise Movement, Extinction Rebellion, Greta Thunberg. Like we're like the the way we talk about climate change now is much less about like the polar bears dying and the, right. you know, and the, like the natural places that we love kind of being under threat and more about like livelihoods and people and like lives and climate migration. And, um, you know, just like how it actually impacts like the systems that we live in and rely on. Um, and so I think that's, yeah, that's kind of the, the paper sort of just tracks it sort of tracks discourse about climate change from the 80s to now through the lens of Bill McKibben because he's kind of the first person to start writing about it and has been writing about it ever since. He still writes about it a ton. He has a weekly column in The New Yorker. Um, and yeah, so I think that's all. <laughs> I'll pause there. But that's kind of the that's the gist of the of what I was trying to do with the paper. I'm sorry I I, I, uh, I interrupted you. Um, what I was going to ask was um, that would be – so his lens, like the 1989, like that book sort of lens about – I don't know. To me, it sounds very visual. Like you're imagining like the polar bears. You're imagining like it, – it feels like a picturesque way of looking at of environmentalism. 
Um, and uh, I, so would that be called conservationism? Like what what are the different types of environmentalism? Yeah, yeah, for sure. So um, basically like like there was kind of a for a long time, there were like these two sort of approaches to envir- like the environmental movement, one being like preservation and one being conservation. Preservation okay. is this idea that like nature has this like inherent beauty to it and that like we need to keep it as pristine as we possibly can. And so, like, you know, when um, John Muir and, like, uh, and Teddy Roosevelt go and see the Yosemite Valley for the first time, and they're like, holy shit, this is amazing and beautiful, and, like, I never want anyone to, like, touch it. And I want it, Mm -hmm. I want to be able, I want, like, people to be able to, you know, come and experience this, like, beautiful nature, Um, you know, and, and we'll later find out that, like, there's a lot of, privilege inherent in saying like oh like i don't want this you know beautiful place to be developed at all because i only want like people who have the means to be able to come and experience it through that lens to come and be able to do that um but anyway oh yeah what does it mean to have an untouched land that nobody can do anything on when you're homeless right exactly and yeah and and so like yeah what does it mean to like direct federal like funds towards preserving this space that like only you know a a very select few that at the time were like white men could actually access and and reap the benefits of right and i think you know it's funny that you say at the time too but i'm I'm thinking about like yeah you know national parks are accessible like you can go but how many people have time to like take off time to go see them absolutely yeah Yeah. and so i think that then you know brings you know so there's another framework that kind of emerges at the time around conservation, which is more about not just like how do we make sure that this stays untouched, but how do we make the like ecosystems and the environment um, that, you know, that exists in our country, like sustainable and like able to kind of to, you know, be sustained over a long period of time and the benefits that they provide us like clean water and clean air um, how do we like sustain those benefits as well? And how do we like allow for, um, for people to be able to, to experience those benefits over like an extended period of time. And it's much more of a like human focused, like, like what are the like direct, you know, benefits to, um, you know, to, to my life as someone who like lives near like a a natural space that like, you know, that is around the corner from me. And mm-hmm. it's, I think the, you know, it, it takes a less kind of um, like spiritual, theoretical approach to like how we treat the environment and takes a much more practical, like what do we get from the environment and what do we, um, you know, how can we maintain those benefits over, over, you know, the long haul. Would you say that you're a type of environmentalist? So I would, so like, I think this was kind of the false binary or like this was a binary that was kind of that captured the debate in like the early, you know, late 1800s, early 1900s. And I think it's very different from where we're at now in terms of how we talk about the environment, actually. Um, And I think, yeah, so there's, you know, I, I think there was a lot of yeah, there was a lot of like the the people that kind of developed that conversation and like set the boundaries of that conversation were known for being super racist. 
Um, and they, right. so like John Muir, who is the guy who like basically founded the Sierra Club, which is like this huge environmental nonprofit. Um, he has a ton of quotes about just like how he would like go on these expeditions in like Yosemite and like, like he would see, like he described Native Americans as like dirty and that they oh my seem to have no right place in the landscape. He was glad to see them fading out of, um, you know, out, out of the, like their, their place in oh, the land. Oh yeah, okay. That puts his like, the, the, that perspective way more in context. That makes, yeah. Right. And I think, you know, that's, that's kind of the that that's the basis of the environmental uh, the American environmental movement is like in like the conservation camp or the preservation camp there was a desire to kind of you know idolize these natural spaces and usually like at the expense of like the indigenous people that were already living there um sure and so yeah and I think that like that really like drove the you know the formation of national parks and everything was really like rooted in this basis of like how do we like make these spaces most beneficial for like white americans that want to come in like that like want to expand from like the east coast of the u.s like over to the west and like how do we sure um yeah how, how do we like make these lands best serve those people um mm -hmm. and i think the <clears throat> the you know there's yeah there's a way that that like kind of evolves in the 20th century that like eventually leads us to like the the bill mckibben era and the climate justice era which i mm -hmm. like i'm like tempted to try and give like a three minute crash course on how that happens but how do you feel about that <laughs> <laughs> go for it okay. go for it i feel great okay so um you know so thanks for checking in <laughs> Um, how do you feel? <laughs> how do we feel about this? So, you know, so yeah, as where we were was like this conservation preservation, like, you know, false binary that really was like rooted in like, how can the environment best serve like the, you know, white European settlers that, um, you know, are, are, are a growing population in, in the country. And um, this, you know, the that doesn't really get challenged until like, for example, Rachel Carson's Silent Spring, which is released in the 60s and kind of notes the like negative effects of pesticides um, from farming on, um, you know, on, on neighboring populations and animals. And like that's kind of like just like the first evidence of the door opening into like environmental movements being about like people and like about like more than just like nature and being about like how like the like you know thinking of farms as the environment and thinking of like the right. you know the parks that are across the street from us as the environment and um or like the concrete that you know that we pave over the uh you know the, the fields that we're you know that we're developing is also the environment and so um you know we end up you know we we start to see some of that and we start to see in the 70s um you know, we see Nixon kind of really hone in on like um, passing like the Clean Water Act and the Clean Air Act and um, kind of leaning into some of these sustainability based um, like approaches to environmentalism in ways that kind of serve Americans more directly. But, um, you know, he like doesn't make any mention Nixon doesn't make any mention when like passing any of these and like for example the state of the union address that he gives in this in 1970 like he 
spends less than 100 words on Vietnam. He makes no explicit reference to race and racial justice and calls for like a war on crime and attack on the welfare system. And but then he spends over a thousand words on the environment and he, you know, and, and he talks all about like how, like, you know, we need to kind of clean up the country's like air and water. Um, and you know, these, you know, these systems and these, these, this legislation kind of gets put in place to try and clean up, um, our air and water. And what it ends up doing is concentrating pollution and like, and polluting factories and stuff into some of the lowest income neighborhoods and people of like neighbor neighborhoods with people of color, um, predominant populations. And so from there, we, you know, we start to see in the 1980s, the term environmental justice really actually like starts to emerge in the conversation. Um, and it, a lot of people point to 1982 when, um, in this County called Warren County in North Carolina, um, which is one of the only a few counties in the state with a majority black population. Um, so the state basically announces a plan to dig up a bunch of soil that is contaminated with cancer-causing chemicals, PCBs, um, from along um, a state's roadway and move it into a landfill in Warren County um, that you know is uh, right next to a, like a population that is predominantly black. And the decision... You know, at the time, they knew there was evidence to show that these chemicals cause cancer. And mm-hmm. um, the decision triggers a wave of protests um, from uh, black-led protests that are, you know, that lead to the arrest of a U.S. congressman and dozens of other activists. And it, you know, it ultimately doesn't actually, like, that instance isn't actually successful, and they still like, end up dumping the soil in this landfill. But it draws wow. national attention to this idea of environmental justice and, like, the environmental like movement being not just about like the pristine areas of nature and being also about like not just dumping all of the like you know the waste and byproducts of like our industrialization into the environments of the communities that were like you know deprioritizing and um yeah so from there like that's kind of where the term evolves and and like becomes a bigger part of um you know of environmental movements and that turns into like latino groups uh, protesting major climate uh, legislation in california because it disproportionately concentrates pollutions in their neighborhoods we all know about the flint michigan water crisis as well which um is an example of like you know a textbook example of environmental injustice and um and it's also kind of where we see things like the Sunrise Movement and the Extinction Rebellion um, that are now putting like racial justice kind of at the front of their their mission. And it's like it's completely tied to what they're trying to do. And so basically like the, you know, the the shift there is like happening sort of at the same time that Bill McKibben is like starting to write. And there's a really interesting sort of shift from like the beginning of Bill McKibben's books where he's really focused on nature and um, and wilderness and like just like the Vermont forests and the beauty of, you know, um, of all that. From that to a more people, community-centric uh, approach to, you know, how do we address environmental issues? So he does move in that direction. He totally okay. does. And I think that I realized that my paper, I probably was writing this at like three in the morning or something, and I was probably really angry or bitter <laughs> or something. 
but I recognize that the paper uh, probably paints Bill in a little bit too harsh of a light. Because <laughs> um, he's done, so like the, you know, other like little Wikipedia facts about Bill is that he, um, so, you know, he was he was a writer for, for a long time, still is a writer. In 2007, he found 350.org, which is this um, organization that is focused on, um, like it's it's, 350 is the like, parts per million uh kind of measurement that represents like a stable atmosphere like a stable uh, amount of co2 in in the atmosphere and oh. so the current level of co2 in the atmosphere is 415 parts per million which means that you oh, know we're wow. we're well above the you know and we already know that like the climate's already warming and, and things are already getting a lot worse um but he starts sure. this group to sort of um try and coordinate grassroots activism across the country related to climate change. And he, one thing that I really like about the work that he ended up, you know, that he currently does with 350.org and that he kind of built up is that he really resists this like notion of individuality in responding to the climate disaster, you know, climate emergency that like everybody just needs to like buy an electric vehicle and everyone just needs to like use less, you know, like recycle more and use like fewer paper towels or something and like shower for less time. But like in in reality, he kind of says that the most leverage you have as an individual in impacting the climate, um, you know, the, the warming climate is to show up to protests and to sit oh, in wow. at banks and sit in at, um, you know, at these big financial institutions that are investing billions of dollars every year into um, fossil fuel industries and just force or, you know, trying to pressure them to um, no longer invest in these in, in oil drilling and in fossil fuels. And it's been hugely successful. He's um, the since its inception in 2012, the divestment campaigns. Um, over a thousand institutions with more than eleven trillion dollars in assets have been divested from fossil fuels. Um, wow! And so that's like a direct that like directly prevents pipelines from being drilled and 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 oil from being you know extracted, which you know makes it a lot easier and and you know for clean energy solutions to you know kind of be the the more predominant um, source of energy in the country. So he's not all bad. <laughs> he's actually not. He's actually mostly good. The the the, <laughs> the paper is just uh, trying to kind of track where he came from in the way that he talked about the environment to where he is now to sort of notice that uh, you know the way we talk about nature and the environment is a lot different. It's interesting that that you bring up um, the individual response because at least in my circles, I've been seeing a lot more about the individual response, but also the debate about no, it's it's not about you, it's about the the corporations, it's about you know, um, and it makes me think about you know the turtle straw movement and the um, the you know the straw on the nose, and it makes me think about the beginning of your paper when you talk about like the image of the polar bear being so prominent in the in like. I think when I was like growing up and I was into in, like environmental justice stuff, like, I mean, that's a, a big word to describe what I was into. I was like, save the animals, you know, because I was 10. And um, like it, it I, I agree that the images and the way that we talk about the environment really crafts the way that the public understands and acts toward um, environmental justice. So it's like, it's really interesting that like a, a very large population of the United States was was more willing to stop using straws 
then to learn about um, like fixing and, and, and bigger changes that can be made. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's... Was that interesting for you to watch? Yeah. I mean, it's part of it is that like it's, you know, it's it feels better personally to just like change your own mm. habits because that's what you can control, right? That's what you feel like you can control. And like, right, there's nothing wrong with people being like, I'm not going to do that anymore. Right, you know? exactly. No, it's, and it's also, you know, it's also less confrontational and less like disruptive. You know, it's, mm-hmm. it's like you're not engaging in like an argument with anyone. You're just like, you're controlling what you can control and you're, you know, you're making decisions to minimize your carbon footprint and your lifestyle, which like I've also tried to do as best as possible. I like, you know, when I was actually commuting to work, I walked to work. So I like don't I like barely ever drive. And I like really, you know, obviously COVID has prevented people from flying a bunch. But like I like try to fly like maybe once per year, like tops. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I'm I like I'm trying to like buy local, you know, food and buy things that were like manufactured nearby so that I'm not like contributing to like the demand for trucks coming all the way from California to ship, you know avocados to burlington even though i do like avocados and still eat them but um you know it's it's, (laughs) like avocados in arizona oh they're good yeah yeah i definitely want one of those but yeah and then it you know so i think there's (laughs) you know when it comes down to it you know they're like it it comes back to bill mckibben's point about like you know that's great to do that but like the the amount of leverage that you have like as an individual to be able to show up to a bank and sit in their lobby and say we're not leaving until you divest from you know fossil fuels or to like make you know other things like oops sorry to say like you know you're changing your like investment portfolio to like you know cut out any uh you know fossil fuels from your like retirement accounts and stuff or you know you're um, you like you're using your like your work you're like asking people at work to say hey like you know what are the assets that our company invested in and like how can we try and get them out of fossil fuels like those are actually the levers that are like that have the potential to do way more decarbonizing than just like buying an EV um, and it's mm-hmm. hard to kind of conceptualize that and think about that but it ends up you know being the case that like Bill Bill McKibben's you know work and it's not just Bill McKibben it's about it's other people at 350.org but they you know they they really you know uh, they've been able to prevent a lot of uh, fossil fuels from leaving the earth and you know by just you know putting pressure on these big institutions and um, mm-hmm. you know that that has cumulatively had a much larger effect on um, carbon emissions than like the you know the sum of like the electric vehicles on the road right now, you know? Right, right. Yeah, when you said EV, I was like, what? Oh, sorry. Uh, <laughs> electric vehicles, yeah. Um, yeah, it's funny, like, uh, just on a, on a personal level, um, like, I, I was on the door the Nextdoor app a few days ago, and I saw people were like, did you guys receive a letter from Luke Air Force that our water is toxic? And I was like, no. And then a few days ago, uh, we received a letter that the water from uh, around Luke Air Force Base is toxic. Mm. So it's only uh, 1,500 houses, but um, for the foreseeable future and for the, we don't know how long it's been this way, uh, the water is toxic. So we don't have clean drinking water and we don't have clean cooking water. And so they will deliver free water to us. But um, like for now, 
I can only use single use plastics. Yeah. Like, yeah. which I, that sucks so much ass. Mm -hmm. Cause there's like, uh, we have like a Brita, but that doesn't do the trick for this type of chemical. Um, and yeah, I mean, I, the, the neighborhood that I live in, I would say is like middle-class and predominantly white. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's not part of that, um, conversation that we were talking about before, mm -hmm. but mm -hmm. On a personal level, I just like feel like shit drinking out of this water bottle, but I don't have a choice because of something that the Air Force did. Yeah. Which sucks. Yeah, that, <laughs> I mean, that's wild. And that's awful, by the way. And it's also really hard to like know that, like, even though you can start drinking bottled water now, it's like, well, what have I been drinking for the you know past few months? That oh, I've yeah. Here? Yeah. There's there's a couple people who are like, wait, I got sick. Is this why? So yeah. that might be something that comes up in the news. We will see. Yeah, we will see. I hope I don't get sick. That'd be awful. Yeah. Oh God. Yeah. And and it definitely is like it, it's it, it's really scary how like easily that kind of thing can happen all over the country and like how ill-equipped we are hmm. to kind of you know retrofit the infrastructure that we have to like fix that oh, problem. Oh my God. Um, yeah, yeah, really, really scary. Yeah, we didn't even talk about Texas yet or anything. Like the the, the problems are real. The problems are now. Yeah, yeah, and it's it's you know I've been reading about you know yeah the it's really hard obviously to like make the connection between like you know frigid temperatures and blizzards in Texas and um you know a warming climate um sure, sure and you know i i would you know naomi klein has a really great piece in the new york times about or maybe it's the new yorker about um you're just kind of explaining like what like how like a warming climate impacts the jet stream which is kind of the mm. like thing that sort of maintains our different sort of like belts of weather in the united states and how that jet stream kind of can like i forget if it was her or someone else who's like kind of described it as like sort of like typically when the climate is stable it's like kind of a, a, a straight like a straight and narrow kind of line that maybe fluctuates a little bit but it gets a little bit more kind of like drunk walking as the climate becomes less mm. and less stable and that means that like just weather fluctuations in general become much more likely in a warming climate when the jet stream is less stable and so these you know oh. like weather systems are much more likely to, you know, it's much, we're much more likely to have an 80 degree, 80 degree day in Alaska, and you're much more likely to have a 10 degree day in Dallas, you know? Hmm. Okay. I mean, that, that was a pretty good explanation to me. <laughs> um, so you've done a lot of talking on this podcast about the ways you really like McKibben. Um, what, what was this paper about? Then? <gasps> yeah, that's <laughs> It's a great point. Like I said, I was, and it's funny that I, yeah, I sent it to this, this podcast it's called the best paper I ever wrote. And I, I learned a lot from this podcast. <laughs> um, I learned a lot from it. And I think basically, you know, as I was, you know, the idea for this paper came from kind of just recognizing the crazy platform that Bill McKibben has. Like I said, he still okay. has a weekly column in the New Yorker. Like he is the climate. Yeah, I googled guy. his name and it was like one week ago. Yeah. And I was like, yeah. wow. And every week. Holy you cow. Know, every week for you know for a long time. And so he um yeah, and his mo you know, and it's you know, it's it's really hard to go back and like read everything that he's ever written because he's been writing for so long. Um but, you know, it kind of you know, basically I sort of just wanted to get a better sense of like Okay, so Bill McKibben has gotten better at, like, kind of, you know, so, so he focused for a long time and kind of, like, his, his writing was really, um, 
like nature centric. And that really does kind of target unintentionally or intentionally like a specific audience of like folks that like have a romanticized relationship with nature. And that kind of, you know, there it's that's that group of people, you know, it kind of by by targeting that audience and kind of being sort of labeled as the father of the climate movement with that kind of approach and lens on his writing. I think it like inherently excludes folks who have either like felt unsafe in nature before or have, um, you know, or like their idea of the environment is not like, you know, the the like beautiful mountains and and rivers and stuff. It's like the it's the the air that they breathe in, you know, that, um, you know, that gives them asthma in their, you know, in their community because of pollution. It's like it's a very different idea of like the environment that like. Basically, I think, you know, has it it can um, it can be. Yeah, it it can just really like create boundaries around the discourse around climate and the environment to say that we're really talking about like nature. And so, you know, as I was doing this research and reading through what Bill was talking about, um, I sort of real like i sort of was asking myself like okay well who's like who's missing and what voices in the climate movement like would be able to build like a broader coalition than what you know bill mckibben kind of allows for based on his approach to writing and based on okay like, sure his history and also his identity as like an old vermonty white dude um and there are a yeah. ton of writers out there that are you know that look different from Bill McKibben and talk about the environment way different than Bill McKibben and who don't have as big of a platform as Bill McKibben does. And so, like, mm-hmm. I just think it's worth asking, like, why? Why don't those people have as big of a platform as Bill McKibben does? And, like, what is a writer or a leader like Bill McKibben's role in providing a bigger platform and a bigger megaphone for those voices in order to broaden, like, a coalition around, like, a green new deal or some, or, or just like climate justice in general. Um, and so, yeah, I found like, I, you know, was able to find a number of like voices that were really exciting to read that kind of changed my understanding of like the environment and writing about the environment and, um, you know, and, and just like really challenged my assumptions about who writes about the environment. Um, yeah. And so, you know, because I think my takeaway, which might be different from what's in the paper, is just that, like, there are people who, you know, write, you know, who, who have a very different perspective from Bill McKibben on the environment and who talk about it in different ways. And they often don't get the same platform. And often they're not even labeled as environmental writers because they are, you know, they're primary, like, they're black writers who are writing about the like intersection of environment and justice and therefore they're categorized as a social justice writer you know oh wow and oh that's that's uh, that's really interesting yeah so um uh, a poet and professor out in colorado actually um i think it's you boulder her name's camille dungy oh she put together this anthology of poetry called black nature and the whole idea is basically to go back through american history and say Okay, for like centuries, um, American environmental writing has been like highly white dominant. And uh-huh. like we need to push back on the notion that like black writers and indigenous writers 
were just not talking about the environment because they were but it just was never called environmental writing and it was never oh, wow. it was never put into that discourse and so she assembles this like beautiful anthology of poetry that just kind of shows like yeah this writing has been here all along these voices have been here all along we've just pushed them to the margins um because you know we've we've idolized and we've like kind of developed this picture in our heads of what environmental writing looks like and oftentimes it looks like Thoreau going into the middle of the woods and pondering his Yeah, existence. I was going to say I like that you bring up Emerson and Thoreau and transcendentalism and stuff and like old white guys. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's <laughs> yeah, you know writing really romantically about nature. Right. And that's just not everyone's relationship with the environment and yeah. you know and it's also just not the primary reason why should we should be caring about climate change. Like it's or at least in in my opinion. Like I love hiking. I like I really like moving to Vermont. I really do like feel an attachment to the environment around me and i recognize that like that's not really what's at stake like it's hmm. like me being able to go on a hike on saturdays is not really this that's not the stakes like the stakes are people's yeah. livelihoods the stakes are climate migration the stakes are hurricanes drinking and water drinking water and heat waves and um you know literally life or death and that has nothing to right. do with whether i'm able to go and hike up a mountain on mm -hmm. you know on saturday so um, yeah, I think that was kind of, and, and so I think like my, um, you know, what I kind of took away from the paper was just like, there are these writers out there and in order to kind of deconstruct what we think of as nature writing and environment writing, we need to go out there and actively seek out these voices and we need to amplify them. And we need to kind of call out that they are talking about the environment and, and the, you know, this work is also like being done a lot more in the last 10 or 15 years, um, by really brilliant writers. I mentioned Camille Dungy. Uh, Carolyn Finney wrote um, a book called Black Faces, White Spaces, um, reimagining the relationships of African-Americans in the great outdoors, um, which is really great and gets at some of this as well. From like a different perspective as well, Naomi Klein kind of was like originally a writer about capitalism and like mm -hmm. and the American like global economy. And she kind of finds herself becoming a climate writer um, because she realizes that those two things are so deeply intertwined and so like she's you know she's writing about like climate and she's writing about like she wrote a, a little book about um puerto rico after hurricane maria i forget what it's called but it was released a couple of years ago and you know it just talks ab about um you know like the the intersection of global capitalism and and climate in a way that you know um that doesn't you know doesn't necessarily strike most people as nature writing or as environmental writing um and, you know, one other, the last one that I'll say um, is Octavia Butler, who's actually a novelist. Um, she's a sci-fi writer who wrote this book called The Parable of the Sower. She's written a lot of other books. She's amazing. Um, and The Parable, Parable of the Sower is a book that's um, literally about like a future. It was written, I think, in like the 80s or 90s. It's a book about the, um, like, it's a futuristic kind of dystopian world in which there's a fascist who's leading america and his slogan for election is literally make america great again um oh really and he you know and, and like he the just like the systems of government that like you know that exist in the in the in the novel uh, are so clearly aligned in parallel with what we're what we're currently seeing uh, and what we've saw, seen for the past four years so it, it's just um you know and all of these like writers are um 
like doing really amazing work and yet like we still see people like bill mckibben who are like kind of at the like those are the people that get the weekly new yorker column and those are the people who get called when we want to talk about climate change you know we talk to the people who've been writing about it for 40 years and who have been labeled as climate and environmental writers for 40 years yeah it's funny that uh, you know the environment to me feels like a stem space um and and so when I was reading your paper and, and you were talking a lot about writers and art and poetry and the way that nature is described poetically, I didn't actually put the connection together. I didn't really understand that part of it. Um, I was like, oh, that's cool that Bobby's talking about like art and the environment. But I, I, I it's it's interesting that I guess the way a lot of people have an end to the conversation is through reading about it, because a lot of people don't go out and see nature a lot of people don't have access to the national parks and don't vacation or whatever to it so the way that that the environment is written about and the way that that writing is accessible the most accessible would be the loudest voice which would be mckibben you know so has an important role in the public's perception of like warming climate change environment you know things like that so I, it's it's interesting the the romanticism the polar bears the what a beautiful forest I'm gonna go on a hike um, yeah that that type of art it's I'm just it's I'm just having my own thought process right now <laughs> you know I was never really a nature person I was never an outdoorsy person growing up in Jersey that's not really like a thing yep that's not like a type of person yep. you can be yep. in New Jersey and completely I never went camping. Uh, never did any of that. It just, it's not something that you do when you're from New Jersey, except like there's going to the beach and the beach is gross, but you still go to the beach. <laughs> exactly. And we experienced two pretty bad hurricanes when we were in high school, Hurricane yep. Irene and Hurricane Sandy. Mm-hmm. And I remember everyone being like, we haven't had a hurricane like this since 1920 something, like, mm-hmm. or whatever. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> or I guess there was Hurricane Gloria or something in the eighties, but they were like, why are there two really bad hurricanes in New Jersey? Um, yeah. Did, did any of your property get, get harmed by Sandy? No, but I remember driving around. I mean, like my neighbor's house got a big tree, like, you know, um, right, right through their roof. And my aunt's house, um, you know, had a a tree through its roof that might not have even, I think that was actually a more recent storm. I'm forgetting. It was either. Oh yeah. We just had a hurricane, um, last summer. I think that might've, yeah. That, so yeah, I mean. It's scary that they're all blurring together now, but um, yeah, yeah. It, it's it was terrifying to just walk around my neighborhood and see trees down all over the place and think like you know there's no way that this has happened you know this is something that's consistently happened in the past and here it is now. Yeah, it's weird that it was like Irene I think was our freshman year of high school and then Sandy was like our junior year of high school, and it's like Irene wasn't as bad as Sandy but it was still really bad and it was like wait what I didn't grow up with hurricanes. Like, that's so odd. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, just how the... the it, it makes me wonder, too, about how um, the conversation is changing because the personal experience is changing. Mm-hmm. Or, or uh, that's a question, I guess, for you, that um, because it's becoming a more urgent problem or because, like, it's just more known about because of the internet and everything. Um, yeah, I guess that's my question to you. Is what, it what you think like, is, of, of why the conversation is changing now? 
Yeah, I mean, I think that a lot of, I mean, the, I mean, there, it's definitely has something to do with the fact that we're already seeing the effects, you know, play out all over the country. Sure. And I think like there's a growing, I mean, it's, it's really, it's, it's young people, you know, it's, it's this, mm -hmm. like the sunrise movement is like for, you know, as, as much as you can call any organization, a backbone of any movement, the sunrise movement really is the backbone of the climate movement right now. And, and it's, you know, it's, in, it's inherently led by, um, young people. And I think, um, that's part of, you know, I think like young people are waking up and realizing like, oh, wow, the science that we're studying in school is telling us that we're not going to have a habitable planet in 30 years. So how am I supposed to yeah. like plan for a career or, you know, like think about like getting married and having kids when, you know, I like I can't even count on my hometown to be above water in 20 years or 30 years, yeah, okay, you know, and sure. so I think I think that's a huge part of it. I think there's also I think I think the the kind of like the tent of like climate action has been expanding because like communicators about climate have started to talk about it in this way that is focused on like how it impacts our daily lives and not just like mm -hmm. it's it's not just like impacting like the you know the mountains and the rivers and like the nature that we think about as separate from how we live our lives it's you know, oh sure we're yeah. you know we're talking about like frontline communities and we're and I think another thing is we're like giving you know increasingly but I think not enough giving platforms to people who have that lived experience and are able to talk about it and um you know and and we're yeah and and are are increasingly becoming change makers one one thing that I didn't mention to you is that I actually a month before I wrote this paper um I uh, had Bill McKibben on my radio show <laughs> You did? I did, yeah. Um, and wow. it was like super, like basically like I was doing a radio show with my friend Tess and also like yeah. for a short period of time, my other friend Katie, and she knew Bill somehow, like family friend, <laughs> which I was like, oh, this is some Princeton bullshit. But um, this is some Princeton bullshit. <laughs> so she was like, oh, I can get him on the show. And I was like, well, sure. Yeah, that sounds good. And I did ask him. And so this was before I wrote the paper. And, I and asked you knew him, you've known who he was. Yes. You knew. Yeah, yeah. I had yeah. been like reading Bill McKim for a while. And okay. I asked him on the show. Obviously, I was like a little bit starstruck, so I wasn't trying to like like yeah. ask like a super difficult question. But I did ask him like, <laughs> what are the voices that we need to be listening to more? Um mm -hmm. and he pointed to AOC. I think it was like right after she was elected, or no, I guess it was like a little while after she was elected. AOC, Deb Holland, who was a representative like now the Secretary of the Interior, the first um Native American to be uh, to hold a cabinet position and Ayanna mm -hmm. Presley, um, who's also like pushing for, you know, a Green New Deal in in um, in Congress. And, you know, so he he knows that these voices exist and he knows who they are, which was kind of that was helpful for me to hear and to, to know that he like yeah. is thinking about this. And he knows that like he knows that <laughs> those voices are important to like building a broader movement around addressing climate change. Um but like the question really just becomes like, does he like, does he add to the conversation by continuing to be at the helm? And like, mm. what would it look like for someone like with Bill McKibben's platform to like try and actually leverage his platform for, you know, to like to, to share other, you know, other perspectives. And like, would that actually, you know, would that en enable a broader 
you know, coalition and different, like with different messengers having more airtime and, and like being seen as more like the go-to person to talk about these things, you know, would that, you know, make a difference and would that bring more people along? And I like think and hope that it, that's, you know, the answer is yes. Um, but that's kind of, you know, that's kind of the, the thought process that I was left with as I was writing this paper. Yeah, I think that's great. Um, I I actually think that we're at a good like like kind of wrapping point. Yeah. Um, I was wondering if you had any points that you didn't uh, hit that you wanted to talk about, and or if you had anything to plug. I learned so much. I learned so much. Thank you so much. Oh, cool. I think this is the podcast where I spoke the least, and I think oh, that, God, that that makes me feel bad. <laughs> no, 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 no. I meant that as a compliment because you just you just knew exactly like you just kept going in it. No, no, it sounds like I'm digging myself into a hole. <laughs> no, 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 it's good. I knew because I, I like, was just sitting here yeah. and just listening and nodding. I was like, okay. Hell yeah. And before Listen, we started recording, I was just saying to to Bobby that I'm like, I'm so stressed <laughs> doing this podcast every week is so stressful. Yeah. So I'm like, all right, doing take it away, favor Bobby. Just take it away. Forever. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, I just, promise I meant that as a compliment. That's that's very kind. I'm uh yeah, and I uh, there are like a million different you know, yeah, I can have this conversation for ten hours, clearly, but um yeah, I guess I don't know. Like, if there's a if like a like a call to action is appropriate, I would just like yeah, ask yeah, folks to just is. like yeah to just like go and seek out like writers that you know have that mm-hmm. are presenting new like frameworks about the environment and to like read them and listen to them and share them and you know kind of check yourself when you're reading something even when it's like from a like you know a certified kind of climate junkie like a Bill McKibben or like. David Wallace Wells or like other like or even like Greta Thunberg like check yourself to think like okay like this person you know like this person is like probably you know probably is is like has good intentions and has um you know is is fighting the good fight but you know what blind spots might they have that you know could be addressed or filled in by different voices and how can we you know how can we best support and amplify those voices? I think that's a great like practice to have in general too. Yeah. Like when, yeah. when you're watching a TV show you really like, when you're watching the news or even just like you in your daily life, like what are my blind spots? Yeah. Um, yeah. For sure. Yeah. It's, it's hard to, to think about that with yourself, mm-hmm. but I think that it's a, that it's a positive thing and you're only going to learn more. Um, that sounded really preachy. I'm sorry, guys. For... <laughs> I mean, <laughs> that sounded really me preachy of me. I'm like, you're all going to learn more, so like, you might as well like try. Just expand your um, comfort zone, everybody. Expand your comfort zone. Uh, get into it. <laughs> oh my gosh. Yeah, this is. A... Um, do you have anything to plug? Uh, plug. Uh, go to a protest. I don't know. Yeah. That's my plug. Do you have any music you're releasing or anything? Oh, I don't know. I guess I'm technically trying to start like my tenth, like the tenth band of my life. I I don't know. Oh, really? Yeah. I so it, like it. There's this. <laughs> you sound really excited about it, Bobby. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's a it's a group. I can't even call it a group because it's me and one other person. But um, it's called it's a group called Ratland. And we yeah, are land. we are making music and potentially trying to put some 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 of it into the digital world space. That's cool. Um, and probably not for a little while, but that's that's kind of. 
you have any releases coming soon at all or no um i don't think so i don't think so okay cool yeah but um yeah i don't know just what are you reading or watching right now i'm reading this amazing book called the overstory um mm -hmm. it's about trees pretty much um but it's a like <laughs> <laughs> Um, it's about trees well it's about <laughs> the ways that like tree it's like a novel but it's not really a novel it's like a bunch of short stories that kind of all like mold into one big story oh that's and, cool and like all of the stories have to do with how like like trees uh like i don't know like kind of art like what kind of presence and role trees like play and have in in a like over the course of a lifetime because they just like live to be so much older and longer than you know than any of us do and oh, so that's like, nice i like that yeah and they're just like so many beautiful like metaphors about trees and how they like survive and i don't know yeah there's i'm which is funny because now i'm just like i like we had this whole podcast about how like we shouldn't be romanticizing nature and then we end with <laughs> me being like yeah this book about trees is so great um but it is a really they just have so many feelings <laughs> and power if you just look at them absorb it <laughs> um yeah but it's a good because it's also about like i don't know people's like livelihoods and and how they yeah um how they overlap and um yeah doing that and i don't think i'm i don't yeah well that's I'll, I'll leave it there what are you reading what are you doing these days oh that's a you good got, question do you have any plugs um, <laughs> do i hey thanks mom <laughs> do i actually have any plugs i'm doing a ton of self tapes right now um which is fun and I am I'm reading um, I'm reading three books. I'm reading a, a Sarah J. Mass like horny fantasy book, mm. um, which is just like it's just candy. You know, mm -hmm. it's just candy. It's not there's no like substance, but it's a great book. Um, I don't remember what it's called, but it's one of her books. She's got like all of them are just like I'm a girl and and I'm like this guy is is too smart and I don't like him. But why am I also a little <laughs> bit horny around? You know, it's. And I'm also a fairy, you know, <laughs> and he can shapeshift. And I'm like, yeah. <laughs> so I'm reading that. Um, I'm reading uh, The Lobotomist um, by Jack Elhai, which is about Dr. Walter Freeman, because I'm writing a play about that. And I'm um, reading the lobotomy, uh, the lobotomy Diaries, I think it's called, wow. which is another book about lobotomies. <laughs> And I'm reading. Um, are you? Is that any connection there? Or are you just you just having a? Yeah, no, they're they're all for the play. They're that for I'm the writing. play, right, right, okay, gotcha. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and then I'm reading an etiquette book from 1949, um, which is also really killer. Um, yeah. So I'm I'm like I'm not really reading for fun right now, except for that horny book. All the other ones are like I'm I'm like reading for. My favorite thing that I learned in in the uh, lobotomy book is, you know, they didn't really understand how brains worked in the 1930s, 1940s. And so in all of the technical writing about lobotomies, they talk about the ego, the id, and the superego. Um, they're like, yeah, and then I sever the connection with the superego. And you're like, oh, you don't know that that's a brain. And... <laughs> Oh my god. <laughs> you literally are like, yeah, and then I put a knife through the super ego. Oh my god. Isn't that so funny? That's so weird. Oh my god. Yeah. Science is so yeah. new. God. I know. <laughs> I know. Science is so new. Um, I don't think do I have anything else? Um I was thinking about oh, this is just we were talking about trees. 
Um, there's a protected, you know, the the when you think about a cactus, you think about the you know the classic version of a cactus, like really tall with the arms, you know. Um, that's a. Pro- Did you know that it's like really protected in Arizona? Uh, y- yes, maybe not really. Kind of. I knew. I okay. know that saguaro is like a thing that like that's where yes. the cacti are. Yeah. Yes. Um, it's so protected uh, that like if one grows in your property, you can't just like remove it. You have to get um, this like group to come take it and replant it somewhere else. And it's because I found out that it just grows like so incredibly slowly. Like it takes like 30 years for it to grow an inch. So like we'll be on a hike and we'll see one of those cactuses, one of those cacti. (laughs) And it's like, it's like 20 feet tall. And I'm like, when you talk about a tree's lifetime, think about these cactuses lifetimes. I had never seen a cactus like that. I just never seen one in person. So when I was driving here from New York and we saw the cactuses, I was like, they're so big. Oh my, those are what cactuses are. Wow. They're just so big. Yeah, they're big. That's yeah, amazing that yeah. they just don't like fall over or something. I Have you know. seen one? No. <laughs> I don't know. It's amazing that they don't like fall over. Like, <laughs> <laughs> that's I don't know why that's really funny. <laughs> they do because they trees. Don't... They don't fall over. Yeah. You could depend on them. Well, sometimes they do, but. Sometimes they fall over, yeah. you know. Trees, but other times they, they but fall. other times they don't fall. <laughs> well, um, thank you so much for your time and your knowledge and and you. Thank you for you as well. Um, oh, this is yeah, so sweet. Such a nice conversation so and um, yeah. Hopefully, I didn't talk too much. <laughs> no, no, you talked to the most amazing about. All right, I'm gonna stop recording. Okay, great. Goodbye. Bye. Best Paper Pod is supported by Hickory Playground, which was founded by Dylan Teshton, Robert Fuller, and Jordan Maycant. Our audio editor is John Morgenstern. Our cover art is made by Morgan Honeycutt, and our jingle was made by Lucky Cerruti. I also want to give a big special thanks to Patrick Yeboah and Simone Elhart. Thank you so much for listening. If you've got a paper you think would be great for the show, submit it at hickoryplayground.org bestpaper. I can't wait to read it.